podcast with Dan and Scott. Hottest golf podcast, whether you like it or not. Fresh from back in the day when that's a put at the park. 7 a.m. PM special where they played after dark. From the birds to the focus to the losses and the win. Welcome podcast, patron to the show, lead the pen. Get busy golfing or get busy dying. Hottest golf podcast and the swing ain't lying. Welcome back, podcast patrons, to episode 150. Can you believe we are at 150 episodes? It's kind of hard for Scott and I to believe that, but with your help and your graciousness for listening, downloading, in- interacting with us on Instagram, we made it to 150. Almost three years in, 150 episodes. We knew we needed to do something special, and I think we got one of the coolest and most interesting names in golf that's kind of blown up on everyone's radar over the last week, and that's Brad Merrick. Now, Brad was a qualifier, one of the 20 PGA teaching pros to qualify for the PGA Championship at Kiwa. Remember the one that Phil won? That one. And he was only one of two to actually make the cut. So he's a member of the Northern California section of the PGA of America, uh, at Corica Park. That's his home course. And he kind of became a little bit partially famous overnight at the PGA Championship because of his different warm up routine on the range. And I, for one, love anything and everything that is different in golf. I fashioned myself an outsider in the sport, filled with tattoos, an unbelievably quirky swing, but someone that also has a deep reverence and understanding of the history of the game. And as soon as I heard Brad talk post-round on Sunday about what the championship meant to him, what the experience meant, you can kind of see the levity of the situation just just hit him. Um, His family was following him around. His high school golf coach was out there and just – seeing what he meant to so many people and allowing them to join in on the ride really connected with me. And I knew we had to ask him and see if we can get him on the podcast. And lucky for us and for you, he agreed. So without any further ado, please enjoy episode 150, our interview with PGA Championship player Brad Merrick. Brad, I, I told the people we needed to bring someone on for episode 150. Uh, that was pretty special, and here you are, my man. <laughs> I like it. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Uh, so listen, I, I guess we got to start right with kind of the most popular aspect of your week at Kiowa, and that was the warm-up routine that you know you showed on the range. So I'm not going to get into like, oh my God, Brad, it's so crazy what you do out there but where where'd that originate from it's a couple just a a handful of things stolen from about two uh, fitness guys that i've worked with in the past uh one of them's a bay area guy joe rosenthal uh and another is jonathan moore who's uh i'm not sure if he still is but oklahoma state strength and coach uh strength and fitness coach um so kind of adapted some of that i'm really tight in hamstrings and hips um, so just trying to get those as loose as possible. I'm sure I'm not doing the movements hundred percent proper, but, uh, <laughs> to say the least that I, and I, and I can promise you if I wasn't six, six wearing a bucket hat, it wouldn't look that ridiculous. It would still probably look ridiculous, but it wouldn't be quite as noticeable. Uh, but I guess, uh, you know, I'd never seen it on video at all. So, um, yeah, it, uh, that was something it was, uh, you know, I'm used to playing in front of no fans. So, uh, you know, to have people actually watching me warm up was uh, was a little bit interesting. All right, so let's let's go there right off the bat. I mean, so I, I'm I'm in love with Kiowa Island. Okay, first off, like everyone that listens to the pod knows this. I gush about it all the time. It's probably one of my favorite places on earth. I think it's probably the most perfect property uh, on earth. So you were down there super early, right? Prior to the PGA Championship. Yeah, we flew in. There's no good way to get there from San Francisco unless you have a private jet. <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no nonstop flights to Charleston. So uh, it, we took basically the whole day on Tuesday bef- before the event. So nine days before the event to fly out there. Uh, got in super late at night. And then it, it had rained all day Tuesday for the most part. And it rained a bunch Wednesday. So didn't do a lot on Wednesday. Um and then saw the, you know, got on property for the first time on uh, Thursday. So that Thursday, 
I'm I'm assuming at that point in time, resort guest play is completely null and void, correct? Yeah, they shut it down, uh, I think, May 1st to the public. Um, okay. And so it was the first day I was there, it was literally just me. I was the only player there. Um, so there were, I mean, who knows, hundreds of people setting up tents and things like that. But I was the only one actually playing that day, um, and, which was very unique. And so have you had you played there before at all or was that the first time on property? No, first time on property ever. Okay. Um, so I guess first thoughts and impressions, what, what did you think when you first got there, when you're seeing, you know, these enormous grandstands and you, you're kind of getting a feel of the place. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, the, like you said, the, the putting green, the clubhouse, the driving range, the 18th green, it, it's so incredibly cool. I mean, you were literally on the ocean. Um, and it, it's kind of, I'm not sure the TV quite does that justice. Um, but that setting, when you walk up to the clubhouse and walk, you know, out the back of it or, you know, walk out the pro shop. I mean, you're just, you're on the ocean. Um, and yeah, so we played, I had, I played it all the way back. So I played it at, you know, 7850 or whatever it was, and it was soaking wet. So it was, um, that was a beast. Um, and, you know, knew that it was going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of homework and a lot of good strategy to be able to tackle that place. So I, I know that, the PGA tour pro mindset is, you know, they can win every single week. They can make every single cut. Any shot that's mishit is never their fault. Cause all they do is hit great shots. When, when you first played that and, and honestly, it sounded like it was probably playing close to like 8,200 yards. If it was soaking wet there, when you first played and let's say you get done with those 18 holes, what were your thoughts for the week going in? I mean, did you think you had a chance at making the cut? Um, there were less, there were less tee shots initially. I was expecting to be super uncomfortable on quite a few tee shots. And the one thing that I did like is that there, there were really only a few tee shots that I didn't love. Um, my strengths typically inside of a hundred yards. And, I, and if you look at the stats, I mean, that kind of came out uh, that week as well, but I was expecting to be a little bit more uncomfortable off of some of the tee shots. Um, a lot of the trouble is, especially on the back nine, is kind of on the right, uh, 12 and 13. And I, I'm comfortable kind of starting something left and, and letting it kind of drift right. And so that, that kind of fit quite a few holes on the back. The, the front's a little bit more draw bias, but it was, you could kind of get away with a cut in most spots. Um, so, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's the hardest course I've ever played by a wide margin. Um, but I knew I was trying to figure out where the birdies were going to come from. Uh, but I thought that with a good game plan, you maybe should be able to eliminate you know, doubles and higher. Yeah, and that, that makes perfect sense going into that. And you had just mentioned where your strengths lie. And one of the stats, which I'm sure you've seen after the PGA, uh, you ranked fifth in strokes gained putting for the entire week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that—that's that right there. I think kind of says it all. Um, so I, I'm assuming the grass there on those greens—that's like that Paspalum mix that they have right near the, you know, near the Atlantic. Um, you're in NorCal, correct? Mm-hmm. So how how different did the grasses play compared to what you're used to at at your home course or in um, your surrounding area? It wasn't. So I grew up in Chicago. So we're used to, I mean, we've got kind of Poe and Bent's mix for the most part. And then I've spent, you know, when I was playing full time, I was spending winters in Orlando. So I've played on a wide variety of grasses. The, the thing, and I'm not sure if they touched on it much on the podcast, on the, on the telecast was those greens were overseeded with Bent. So they played they played pretty much like a Midwest green. There was a little bit of underlying grain, but it was more, it was more a factor on pitches and chips than it was putting. Um, it really, there were only about two greens where I thought there was a significant amount of grain uh, where you had to kind of pay attention to it on direction of putts, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting, honestly, because that's the first person that I've heard say that um 
especially kind of comparing it to the Midwest Greens. I mean, so quite an advantage for someone that grew up playing that, you know, those conditions. Yeah, it was. And I think it's a totally different animal. Like the last time they had it there in, I think it was in August then, um, then I could see, I mean, that, the, I'm sure those things are going to be super grainy at that point. Um, but it was, there's some grain on them, but it's just more, I would describe it as kind of like, more like a grainier bent than you'd see. So a, a, a bent grass variety that has just a little bit of thatch to it. Um, gotcha. So, and more, you know, when it was cross grain, it, it wouldn't grab it a whole lot. It was just more if the putt was into the grain on a longer putt, it was definitely gonna be a little slower, but um, the wind played such a factor out there on the putts, especially, you know, days one and two, that, you know, the wind was certainly a, a more significant factor than the grain. Well, that's what I was going to touch on next. Everyone always thinks that the wind plays more into your, you know, your longer shots, your full shots, and, and not maybe your chips and, and pitches. But everything hard on the ocean is is literally super exposed to the ocean. Like, there there aren't these enormous 30-foot dunes that that buffer any wind that comes off of it. I mean, when you're standing on the 18th green, you literally are eye level with the Atlantic. Um, so during your practice round days, was the wind similar to what you saw, saw during Thursday through Sunday competition? It was, we probably had, so I was there for, I was there for seven days before the event. I should just got the monthly membership. Um, so, uh, I, I'd say, either two or three of those days, it blew about as hard as it did day two, which was really helpful. And where, um, like where the pospollen was interesting is if you were in the fairway and into the wind, your ball just spun so much. Um, and I had TrackMan out and it was, you were seeing anywhere from a thousand to 2000 additional RPMs on, on pretty much every club. Wow. From, say eight iron through wedge. Once once it got out to like the four, five, sixes, sevens, it started to to flatten out a little bit. But those short clubs into the wind were brutal. Um, you had to do everything in your power to try to take spin off, just because the, it's such a tight grass and the ball just sat up perfectly that you were just getting you know just basically max spin numbers on it. And so when you when you were on the greens, and last thing I want to touch on, kind of the wind and stuff there, because I think it's overplayed but if if you've ever played the ocean course i mean it really does factor in i mean the first time i played i I got my teeth kicked in i mean there's no way around it you know i just was completely unaware and and as much as people tell you about it until it's blowing in your face or blowing sideways and you're hitting to this sliver of green which looks like nothing from the fairway you can't quite grasp it but did you have any putts um that maybe missed high or low because of the wind? One, one that came to mind, but I mean, the day two, you were just, you had to be, anytime you had 20 feet or more, you just had to be a little bit more defensive and just kind of allow for the wind to drift it at the end. Where, you know, in the whole week, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, when we sat down and broke down, the whole locations come out the night before. So I'd sit down with my coach and my, my caddy and we go through it. And what we were trying to do is, you know, we knew on that long of a golf course and me not being a super long hitter, I mean, we were going to miss plenty of greens. So we were plotting and trying to figure out, it's like, okay, like this is where we want to be to this pin if we're in the fairway. And, and generally that was still, you know, very much center of the green because the greens aren't that big out there for as long of a golf course as it is. Right. So, it was a lot of centers of greens. And then we were, we were talking kind of contingency planning on every hole of like, okay, like, you know, if we're in the fairway, we know we're going to try to do this. But if we're in the bunker or we're in the rough, you know, now we have to make sure that we try to leave ourselves with an into the wind short game shot. Uh, because if you're into the wind, you could still kind of play offense for the most part. Even if you were short-sided, you could throw it, you know, up a little bit higher and the wind would help stop it. But the minute that you got downwind on short game, it was very, very difficult to judge, um, you know, how that ball was going to react when it came out. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, I, 
easier said than done, obviously, for you know an amateur or even a high-level amateur, but that makes perfect sense when kind of plotting your way around the course. So one of the things that I thought was was super cool, I have a buddy that caddies down there, and he kind of alerted me. He said, you know, hey, some, you know, this teaching pro came out super early. You know, I think it's awesome. Like, that's the same thing I would do if I had made it in. And, and believe me, that's the same thing I would do, too. If I made it to a major championship ever, even a tour event, I, <laughs> I'd bring him up the month before. I'd be like, look, what is the maximum amount of time I can spend there? Um, did, did, did they... Do they give you like a time frame? Do they say, hey, the earliest you can come is seven days out, something like that? No. Uh, so they, I, I think the Club Pro ended, which for people that didn't follow that, the Club Pro is how the PGA of America guys qualify into the PGA Championship. So the top 20 at the, the National Club Pro get into the PGA Championship. And I think that ended on the 28th of April. I think it's either 27th or 28th of April. Um, and... And we were basically allowed to get out there, you know, whenever we wanted after that. And I think, you know, I was by far the first one to arrive. Um, and I'm sure it helps being a teaching professional. I don't have, you know, other than the, my students, I don't have really a, a boss to answer to. Um, but yeah, I, I thought, and especially for a course like that, that was going to be so difficult and it being my first major, I, I really knew going in that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I, I needed to adjust to the people being around and just the kind of the circus factor of, you know, what goes on at a major championship. So I knew that I wasn't going to get a ton of prep work on the golf course done Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, I had some equipment stuff that I needed to get dialed in with ping. So I knew that was going to take up, you know, a large chunk of Monday. Um, and then there's just, there's all other kinds of stuff that, you know, kind of gets in the way. Uh, we had to move from one rental house to another, uh, as well. So I knew that my prep work, the bulk of it needed to be done Thursday through Sunday. All right. So you stole the question from me, which is, which is perfect. A great segue. What's that like when you're there for three, four days by yourself, you kind of, you know, you mill around the clubhouse, you go out whenever you want, you take as much time out there. And then the circus, you know, that is the PGA tour and the European tour members and everyone that qualified. What's that like when that circus descends upon the course? It was, um, my, my coach and caddy and I joke, we just kind of joke of what happened to our private course, uh, right. Monday when, right. that's, whenever, that's whenever exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't get out there till, you know, probably almost 11 on Monday. Um, cause we had done a little bit longer day on Sunday and, uh, it was, it was crazy to see. I mean, the one, the, you know, the amount of people that were on property on Monday was, was tremendous in terms of, uh, in terms of fans. Um, I, I think probably cause they limited it to 10,000 tickets a day. There were people that were shut out of getting tickets during the, you know, the Thursday through Sunday. So those, those people that had the practice round tickets, it, it sure seemed like it was about 80% full. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, which I'm sure at a normal major is nowhere near that, uh, that level. So do you, do you recall who kind of the first, you know, big names or faces that you saw coming in were? Uh, I think Dustin was there, I think on Saturday. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was Saturday. He was there. Adam Scott was there. Um, on Saturday, I believe as well. Those were the two biggest. Um, and then it's, you know, it's such a big property that once you, once you get out on the golf course, you really can't even see adjacent holes. And right. even if you, even if you can, you need a laser to figure out who it is. Uh, so, um, yeah, but it was, so it, it was kind of weird. I mean, it was just, kind of all to ourselves. We just would go out, we'd lay, you know, we'd lay down the, the 2012 hole locations um, with some of the ghost holes and just hit a bunch of chips and putts to them. Um, the greens are such that they're really only about four or five locations that you can put pins. So it made prep work from that perspective. You knew that they had to reuse quite a few of the pins they, they used the last time they were there. So it did make prep work a, a little bit easier. You weren't trying to figure out eight whole locations and they were going to pick four of them. Like you knew that they had to repeat at least three of them from 2012. And for the most part they did. 
Gotcha. Yeah, well, I mean, and that is just one less variable that you need to worry about in a week like that. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, and that, that helped a bunch. I mean, there was just no... I thought we did a really good job of that. There were just there were very few surprises in terms of strategy and setup, uh, especially the first two days. I mean, it, we we really kind of knocked that out of the park as a team. Now, where did you stay uh, for that time being, whatever it ended up being, 13, 14 days there? We were staying in uh, just outside of Charleston and Mount Pleasant for the first, I think, six nights that we were there. Oh, so you, you had a hike to get there yes. every day. Yeah, we had a, a family friend had a house and they were nice enough to, to open it up to us. Um, so we had a free place to stay the first six nights we were there. And then, um, you know, for those that have never been there, it's a two lane road in and off the island. So once a tournament week starts and the traffic picks up, you, you basically have to get on the island and inside the bubble or else it's a chaotic commute to say the least. So uh, then we rented a house. It was about 10, 12 minutes tops away from the course. Uh, it was right on Q Island. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, cause Mount Pleasant being east of, of Charleston, I mean, that, that adds, gosh, I mean, even from, even from like West of the Ashley to get to the course is like 45, 50 minutes. So I'm, I'm sure you were banging what an hour, hour and 15 from Mount Pleasant. Yeah. Hour five, hour 10 usually. Yeah. Um, and, and it was fine. I mean, it was. Yeah, it wasn't ideal, but I'm glad we, you know, the the plan worked out all right that, you know, on Monday we moved into the rental house on Kiwa Island, so. So was that your first time down in and around Charleston area? No, I used to play uh, Azalea Amateur is a big amateur event. Yeah, um, yep, hosted, sure. Uh, Country Club of Charleston. Yep. And I played in that a handful of times uh, back in college and just out of college. So really like the city of Charleston is fantastic. One of my favorites. So uh, good memories of, of coming down there for that. Now I, I'm assuming during the week proper of the PGA championship, um, everything on sites probably taken care of for you, right? As far as food goes and, and all that stuff while you're, you know, inside the bubble, as you said. Uh, yeah, they, pretty much everything but dinner. I mean, they've got breakfast for you there. They've got lunch. They've got, afternoon appetizers and snacks um you know you name it it's taken care of there uh sunscreen bug spray <laughs> anything you can think of they've they've taken care of during that week so as as someone that played you know collegiate golf in the big 10 as someone that spent years on the mini tours the golf aspect of the week I, i'm just assuming here correct me if i'm wrong but the golf aspect of the week probably seemed kind of second nature to you. How did you deal with everything else that went on and, and kind of all the, the hoopla that surrounded, you know, you once the story picked up of your stretching routine and then obviously you being only one of two people to make the cut on the weekend? Um, I felt during the week, you know, the, the Monday through Friday, it really wasn't, it really wasn't too bad. I would, uh, I would just do one like nightly post on social media, uh, to the people who are trying to follow along back home, either in Chicago or Bay area. Um, it wouldn't be on it, you know, very much other than that. Maybe just a couple times throughout the day, just to post a random picture or something. So I kind of limited my time with that. And that was kind of my main way to send enough, send updates to friends and family. Um, and it really wasn't, it really wasn't too chaotic until, Thursday, some more friends and family started to show up because they came for the first round, which was amazing. Um, but then it really wasn't a whole lot. I just had one or two interviews on Thursday after the first round. So it wasn't really, it wasn't unmanageable at all. And I played early and then had that, you know, long wait in between. So it was pretty well, you know, didn't feel overwhelmed by any stretch with with that, I had adjusted fairly well to the the amount of people that were there. Um, played right in front of Spieth in the the Wednesday practice round, and everybody was lining up to see him. Um, so those were honestly some of the biggest crowds all week were the Wednesday practice round crowds. Um, and I think that helped get used to some of the ambient noise, just the the white noise in the background that comes with the with the bigger crowds. 
Did you experience any of the the crush of people like we saw, you know, obviously coming up the 18th on on Sunday? Did you experience any of that during the week? No, (laughs) no, no, I hadn't gotten that popular. (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't have to worry about that. Uh, We did have on 17. We did have some people kind of yelling from another hole that kind of got me and another guy. Um, But it, it really wasn't, you know, the fans were great. I mean, they were. You know, they did a great job rooting me on throughout the whole week. I was, was stunned at the amount of support that I had from uh, from people out there, to say the least. And it, so, you know, and getting back to your earlier question, like the, you know, the Friday turnaround into Sunday, I mean, I get off the golf course at 830. It took us six hours to play. That was tough. That That's when it started to become a little bit more overwhelming. Um, finish at 830. I've got to be back at the golf course you know, 13 hours from then, and I've got an hour of media stuff to do. You know, we leave the golf course at 930 and we still haven't eaten dinner. Um, so that was, that was tough. And there was a lot of, I mean, there's so much put into the prep and just the emotion of battling that day and making the cut. I mean, cause it was, it's probably the hardest round of golf I've ever played in my life. I mean, it's blowing 25 to 30 out there and you're, you know, you, you know, you're right on the cut line starting the day. Yeah, and I'm sure it's at that point. I mean, you know, the physical for you is is probably not difficult at all, but the mental stress of that and just wanting to, you know, do the absolute best that you can do and and make it to the weekend because, you know, historically it's not like eight or 10 PGA pros make it every year. It's it's always one, two or three. So it's it's such a select small group of just awesome company to be in to make it to the weekend. Yeah, for sure. And and especially on that, yeah, you know, if you're looking for a golf course that, man, that that's probably not the best one for, you know, PGA pro, PGA of America pros to to have a chance of playing well on. It's, you know, it's just abusively hard if you get out of position. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I uh look a, a, as a semi-decent amateur, believe me, I can attest to that 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So let's, I mean, the, the, it, it was an amazing experience. I mean, you know, like I said, you, you crashed into people's radars and, you know, I think now you're kind of on people's radars and they're never going to forget that stuff. And it, I'm going to assume again, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of a dream come true scenario for you. That, uh, yeah, to say, I mean, I'm just not quite sure that I've, we, we went and played, I, my wife and I had some friends in town yesterday and we played um, Pasa Tiempo, which is really good course in Santa Cruz. So just outside of the Bay area yesterday. And I, yeah, and I was spotted by, I think three separate people there. And I, I think that was the, I knew I would obviously get recognized and people would come up to me at, at the place where I teach, but to get spotted, you know, an hour and a half away from where I teach uh, that was, that was interesting. <laughs> And, you know, I, I think I've, it's just kind of setting in how, you know, many people were watching and, and noticed. Well, I, I told you the story before we started recording the range that I work at. We get a lot of new people, a lot of people that their first time ever hitting golf balls is at our range. And usually it's because they saw a long drive contest or, the, you know, the PGA was on or the Masters usually. All right. That's always the big rush around here. It's like spring starts in Northeast PA. Golf season starts when the Masters start. But I had a, a person come up and the individual said to me, you know, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I should start, you know, with like the warm up poses that the golfers do or should I start hitting the club? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh. Like this woman is literally talking about Brad Marrick and his warm up at the PGA. Like that's how many people this reached. This little woman who knew nothing of golf prior to that week in Northeast PA shows up to the range and she thinks because she saw that on TV, like that's the way it should be. And I just, I, I loved it. I like, I'm in love with that story and I, I think it's hilarious. Yeah. I, I, I'm still in shock that that uh, that it's had that much of an impact, to say the least. What what was the what was the cell phone situation like after Sunday? I mean, were you even I, I, look? I'm going to be honest, dude. I can't even believe you responded to me. 
Uh, it took me, and I'm sure I missed. I'm sure I missed some. I, I'm going to have to go back in and and do my best to try. But I mean, between between texts, emails, lesson inquiries off of my website, Instagram, uh, you know, Instagram comments, Instagram direct messages. Uh, I, I I can't even begin. I mean, it's probably approaching a thousand. Um, and I, I think I finally like gone a couple nights ago, maybe got back to everybody. Um, it was, I mean, a great problem to have, but it's, you know, if you're like looking at the text, like, especially after Friday, it's just like, you look at the timestamp on the text and your, and your iPhone and it's just like 805, 805, 804, 804, 803, 803. <laughs> Somebody texted me seven minutes ago and it's like 40, it's 40 messages deep. Uh, so it was. It was, I mean, it was incredible though. It, it, unbelievable problem to have. And, um, you know, just the support from, you know, the people at Kiowa, friends and family, you know, people that I've kind of lost touch with over the years, reaching back out. I mean, it, you know, friends from college that I haven't seen in, you know, a dozen years, it, it was unbelievable. And then I had, you know, 20 to 25 people that, that came to Kiowa just to follow me, uh, all of which for the most part had bucket hats on. So that was, that was pretty special. <laughs> the bucket brigade for sure. Yes. So it it was uh it was you and Ben Cook that had made the cut and on Saturday morning before play had started, uh buddy of mine that caddies at Kiowa, and this was early, it was like six fifteen in the morning. I think Brian Gay went off first at like I don't know, seven something. Um mm-hmm. he texted me and uh he said, Hey, you've got to keep an eye out for Brad Merrick. And I said, okay, you know, why? He said, and he was working inside the locker room um, that week. And he's, you know, just a normal caddy there during the year. And he said, look, this guy's been on property since like day one. He had the place to himself. He is the nicest, most humble, down-to-earth guy you ever want to meet. And and he's 6'6 and wears this bucket hat. And you can see him from like a mile (laughs) away. And he's just like this awesome dude that radiates just great energy. And I was like, uh, all right. I said, dude, without a doubt. I said, I will, I will, you know, watch and stuff like that. And then, you know, I saw the warm-up routine and I saw everything. I texted him back. And I said, I said, we've got it, like, we've got to get him on the podcast. <laughs> and so I told him, I said, look, I said, if you happen to see him, and this is Saturday now, I said, if you happen to see him after, like, don't bug him, but maybe just kind of throw it in his ear. Like just maybe a mention. So if if I reach out. You know, he's kind of like, oh, man, that kind of sounds familiar. But he was stuck inside the, the lockers all day long. And uh, I, got a, I got a text when I woke up the next morning. It was like at midnight. He's like, hey, man. He's like, I looked from everywhere. I couldn't find him. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the locker room guys were off the charts good. I mean, they were, you know, they saw me for two weeks. Um, uh, they were so nice. And, I, you know, me not knowing, you know, really any of the tour players. I mean, that, those were the guys that I would kind of chat with, just go up there and shoot the breeze with them and you know see what's going on because you know being kind of an outsider in that circle um you know once i was you know my wife can't come into the locker room or anything obviously so those were you know it spent a lot of time talking to those guys over the week and a half that i was there i think that's one of the reasons why too so many people gravitated towards you is because you know look i mean you you played what 11 not nine years on mini tours 11 years yeah something i think nine Okay, so I mean, you know, you you've made money, you've had wins, you're a teaching pro, but I think people still kind of look at at like that, you know, homegrown guy, like, hey, that that could kind of be me. Like, I would love to play around with him and then go to the grill house afterwards. And they see these tour guys as, you know, these upper echelon dudes that that block out everything and have no time for anybody. And I think I think that's what kind of ingratiated you to everyone on the island and at the course is that you kind of had time for people, you know, I mean, you, you really seem like you enjoyed the hell out of the experience that week. Oh, with, without a doubt. I mean, that was, you know, number one goal. I mean, I just, you know, going in, it's still not my favorite course in the world. Uh, so it's just stressful. It's, you know, there's a lot of visually demanding shots. Um, you know, I, I went in there with the, you know, the goal that I was going to give it, you know, everything, you know, everything that I could to play my best, but I also went there with, you know, I want to learn, you know, talk to caddies, coaches, you know, players, let's see how, you know, I can get better as a player. 
but then also like, what can I take away from this? How can I improve as a teacher? Um, you know, a lot of what I do is working with juniors who are trying to get to the next level. So play golf in college, get a, get a college scholarship. And, uh, you know, the, the coaches, the caddies, you know, the, the players that I chatted with were, were, were off the charts and, you know, learned a lot. Uh, and I, but I think most importantly got, you know, kind of confirmation of a, a lot of the stuff that I'm already doing and, you know, in my teachings with juniors and things like that are already pretty good and just, you know, ways that I can improve some of those things and just kind of spice it up with some variety. All right. Well, let's touch on that real quick then. I mean, we have a lot of juniors that listen to this podcast. So what did you get out of the week that you can kind of let trickle down into your teachings? Anything specific? First and foremost, and probably the simplest, most applicable, like if you think you're working hard, you're not working as hard as some of these guys that are out on tour. Um, I mean, I always thought of myself as a grinder. Uh, it was absolutely incredible to watch the amount of balls that Phil Bryson, I think Alex Noren is still there hitting balls. Uh, it was, it was nuts. Alex Noren hit 500 balls a day minimum. Um, so it, the, the amount of work that uh, the amount of work that goes in and is required to get to, you know, any kind of elite level, like just, first and foremost, work harder. You know, if you think you're working hard, you can always work harder. Um, and then just, you know, really, I mean, find ways to make the practice challenging and, you know, don't just bang balls at the same target. I mean, have some corridors that you're, you're trying to keep the ball with within, um, you know, with putting, there's a ton of games you can play to track progress over time. And, to kind of measure yourself against, you know, PGA tour strokes gained. Um, so where you're trying to, you know, do drills where if you succeed at the drill, you're going to be positive. You'd be positive strokes gained putting for those, uh, for those putts. So it's just, you know, and then just, just keep going. There's no magic formula. I mean, these, these guys just work and the stuff you hear on the range out there isn't, you know, it, it's not rocket science. It's a lot of stuff of just, you know, I heard Patrick Cantley and his coach just talking about, well, the takeaway is getting a little inside, like just, you know, get the club head a little bit more outside. It's just, it's simple stuff. There's no, you know, there's no shortcuts. I think it's just hard work and, and perseverance and, you know, obviously talent plays some role, but if you're willing to work, you know, I think there's, there's a spot out there for just about anybody that's willing to put in the time. Was there anything you heard uh, on the range during the, ra during rounds, even with, with, you know, some of your playing competitors, I know you played with uh, Adam Hadwin uh, at one point in time, uh, gosh, that's who else? Who else did you play with? Uh, played with Lonto Griffin and Peter Melnati the first two days, who could not have been nicer. Um, I think that pairing really helped, to be honest. I mean, they're they're former mini tour guys themselves. Uh, Peter Melnati and I played ten years prior in the final round of the Nebraska Open. Uh, we were in the final group. Uh, I was up by a couple, and he ended up beating me. He finished second. I. Or I he won, I finished second. And just to have that familiarity and be with two guys that are familiar with kind of the struggles of professional golf, I, I think was, was comforting in some ways to me. Because there's some guys out there that know nothing different other than top-level D1 program, and you go right from there. Maybe you spend a year on Corn Ferry, and then you're on tour, and you never leave tour. Um, so I, that pairing, I think, was, was super helpful. Anything that you saw from those guys as they kind of maneuvered around the course that you picked up on that, that you kind of liked and say, hey, maybe, you know, maybe the next time I play competitive golf, I, I want to let that sink in a little bit. I mean, <laughs> yes, but I think that involves, you know, swinging it at 175 miles an hour and not missing the center <laughs> of the face too often. Um, but like from a, you know, from a more applicable standpoint that, that everybody can kind of put to use is it's just, you know, they're just, it's just shot after shot, just hitting shots that they know that they can hit. And it, and it really is just, it's just a lot of aggressive, confident swings to pretty passive targets. Um, you know, a lot of these shots that end up close are just, you know, kind of overdraws or, you know, pushes that, you know, end up close to the pin. It's just, 
it's a lot of, it's a very conservative game plan, especially when you get on a golf course, that's that difficult. Um, but just hitting shots that, you know, you can hit and it's not, you know, it's not the hero shot that, you know, that separates. It's just this ability to just kind of repeatable shot shape, repeatable window that it launches out of. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing is these had the play with Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, on Monday practice round, super nice guy. Um, but man, I mean, it just, the ball just comes out of the same window every time, um, you know, with and nine out of 10 times, it's going to be the shape that he wants it to. Yeah, that's, it's, it's real interesting because, you know, I, I have a few friends that play on tour as well as the LPGA tour. And what always strikes me, I always feel like I'm going to be a better golfer after watching them. Just, just seeing the, the tempo and the rhythm and just kind of the smoothness in which they approach things. But I, I think the biggest thing for me as an amateur is the repetitiveness. Like you said, ball going out of the same window. I mean, you look at a wedge club face and it's like the size of a dime they're hitting it on. And I just impossible for someone like me to wrap my head around. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, that's where, you know, that's where some of the stuff is taught. I mean, as a, you know, if you're a, 90 shooter or something like that clearly the you know that's not going to be a, a short-term great goal but it's you know i do think that if you know if you want to get better it's just just be smarter about your work be you know be diligent and you know find a way to track progress over time i mean all these guys are they're so fortunate on tour with the shot link stuff i mean they have such great data to sit back and analyze um you know and if you're serious about getting better like i think that that's I think that's something you need to do um, rather than, you know, just kind of guess like why guess when you can measure. Sure. Sure. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit, talk a little big 10 golf uh, us here in Pennsylvania being kind of the Eastern portion of big 10 country. You went to, to IU uh, played golf there four years. What, it, you know, it's a big division one school. But what's playing Big Ten golf like compared to, you know, the the USC's or the Floridas or, you know, the Virginias of the world? I mean, I think the first is just the, I mean, just the conditions. I mean, it's almost at times it can seem like a different sport. Um, you know, we're playing, I mean, I can remember playing and there's, it's snowing. And we, <laughs> yep. had a, we had a round get, we had a round get snowed out. And then we've had to play the next day on, on, the, on the golf course. So you know, from that perspective, I mean, you see some of these scores that like, you know, Florida, Alabama, stuff like that, you know, they're shooting. I mean, those, you know, it's, they're tour-like scores, but they're also, you know, playing 75, 80 degree weather without a whole lot of wind. Whereas, you know, we're playing the, the Purdue golf course at, you know, April 10th and it's 47 degrees and it's blowing 20. Um, so it, it's just a lot, it, it's really demanding and it's, I think it's good though. I mean, I, growing up in Chicago, I'm, you know, was, was used to all that my whole life. And I think that really came in handy, especially second round at, uh, at Kiowa because it, it was not very pleasant. Uh, but I had fortunately played plenty of rounds in weather like that. It's nice to hear you say that we have a, we have a big contingent of listeners from the South. Obviously, as you would expect, you know, being in golf central weather. And when we tell stories on here about our rounds or about, you know, growing up, Scott, who does the podcast with myself and I grew up on Long Island. He lives upstate New York. I live in northeast PA. Uh, you know, like I don't really know good weather. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, so, <laughs> for sure. It's, it's nice to hear someone else, you know, kind of be able to just just understand what it's like going out playing 40 degrees with it raining on you. You know, like my, my son and I just went fishing before this podcast day before it got dark because it was like a two hour window when it wasn't going to rain. You know, we get out there, it's 46 degrees drizzling on us. Then we have to leave because it starts thundering. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just like a black hole for golf weather around here. It's, I mean, I, the juniors that I teach, they're all, they, they often like, well, how do you know so much about the, like, how do you know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow? I'm like, well, it's, you know, it's just habit from a lifetime of, you know, being in the Midwest and we've only been out here five years now, but 
you know, you basically have to look at the forecast and plan your week based on, well, it's going to rain here or, you know, where, where can I fit in two hours to play nine holes or something? Um, you know, these, these kids out here in Northern California, especially this past winter, I mean, I think it rained a half dozen times, but it's, you know, every day is kind of the same. It's, you know, if you want to golf, you can go golf. The weather's going to be good. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting dynamic though. I mean, it, you grow up in the good weather, you get more chances to play, but you certainly, I don't think get that, you know, kind of toughness that comes with learning to get your ball around, no matter what the conditions are. Um, so I think it's a bit of a trade-off. Yeah, no, I can, I can kind of see that a hundred percent. Um, so how, how did you, how did you end up out in Northern California? Um, we took, uh, my wife's job took us out here. Um, so she, we were, uh, we were engaged at the time, but she got a, a job offer with Apple. Uh, so she's a lawyer uh, for them. So that, that took us out here. Uh, I think it was fall of, uh, fall of 16, fall of 15. Um, and then I played for the first 18 months that we were out here and then, and then got into teaching after that. Do you miss anything about the grind from the mini tours or are you more adept to, to the, you know, the teaching lifestyle? Um, I miss the, I had a bunch of really good friends that I would travel with. Um, we'd, we'd kind of sit down in, in January, February, March and go over schedule and figure out, you know, what the schedule was going to be. And we try to play the same events so that we play practice rounds together, share Airbnb or a hotel. And I miss, you know, there's a camaraderie that's, you know, probably much like a locker room in any kind of team sport. You know, you you root for these guys I and mean, you become so close with them, traveling with them. Like I miss I miss that aspect of it. Um, you know, always being around the golf course and just, you know, that's the I, I do miss that aspect. I don't miss the, you know, the aspect of being gone for two, three weeks at a time, eating out every single meal. Like that that gets old pretty quick. But just the more the camaraderie and just the the challenge of trying to get better on a day to day basis. Like that's your you know, that's your one and only task and goal is to try to get better. Like that, you know, that's kind of what always motivated me. So to a normal, I I hate to use the word normal. I don't, I don't want this to come around, you know, come across incorrectly. But to a normal PGA teaching pro, I would say, you know, well, what's your game like now? Obviously, we we know yours. It's it's in phenomenal shape. Uh, most of the people that that we speak to in the golf industry, you know, will tell you to a person that if you are in the golf industry, you usually play less golf, you know, than than the normal amateur that's out there. So I'm assuming you probably have a minimal amount of time to practice. So I guess for not only myself but the listeners out there. How are you making your practice just so essential and so beneficial in the little amount of time that you have? Um, I mean, the one answer isn't going to be cheap. Uh, <laughs> buy a track man or some sort of uh, <laughs> some sort of monitor where I mean, because that it's unbelievable how much more efficient kind of inside of 125 yards you can be when you have the feedback like that. Um. You know, and I look forward to the day when that becomes more affordable for the masses. I think it'll, I think it'll really help. You know, people that are serious about their game get 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 better. Having feedback is is just crucial. Um, and then I think, I mean, some of it I think is, to be honest, just understanding my swing a little bit better, to where I'm, you know, I'm not searching as much as I did when I was playing full time. I mean, then you have all day to kind of fiddle with whatever you want to fiddle with. And I know that now I don't. Um, so, so I think that's another big aspect is just kind of trying to own what I have versus trying to recreate and make it better. Are you, are you someone that sets specific goals like in stone for the year or do you just kind of let the, your golf year flow? Um, no, I, I, I have set them in the past and it just never really, I, I feel like for me, at least like if you, if you get off to a slow start, some of those goals might not necessarily be attainable and it can, 
can be, you know, a little off-putting. So, no, I, I mean, I've really, you know, and I, I try to strive this with some of my, with all my students is just control what you can control. Just the process of, you know, going about getting better. Like, you know, you put in the time, go about it the right way. And, you know, six months from now, a year from now, like you're going to like, you know, if you truly put in the effort and you, and you put it in the right way, you're going to be a better golfer than you were the year before. Um, and especially at that junior level, when if you put in the time, I mean, you're really going to make a lot of progress. Um, but honestly, it's kind of cliche now, but it's, just, you know, it's just about sticking to a process and following it. I mean, it even worked out for the Sixers. So, well, that's it's funny that you mentioned that because we're enormous Sixers fans here. <laughs> I so, figured as much. I figured. <laughs> so, so being up three nothing, you know, not knock on wood, being up three nothing now after just years of of turmoil. I mean, it's gosh, it's been since two thousand and one since we've been in the finals. Um, but that's that's you know another story. I'm also a Jets fan, so that's been since nineteen sixty nine. So I mean, you know, I, I could I could go off forever on the futility of my you know, professional sports teams. Um, I, I had asked that question before because I was curious. With all the success this week and everything that's kind of gone on, do you have a different mindset now with your practice and, and with your goals? You know, do, do you feel like, okay, I mean, this was, you know, maybe this was my watershed moment. Like, maybe this was my breakthrough. Uh, you know, do you have higher arching goals now than maybe you did two weeks ago um yes and no um to be honest i mean i've I've probably played my best golf since i started teaching and you know i do i schedule it in a fashion where i still get to play probably a dozen events a year uh keeps me competitive I, i think it's really good for you know, the juniors that I'm seeing, you know, that, I, that I'm working with to see me go through the process of preparing for a tournament. Um, and so, you know, it is kind of funny, you know, you, you work your, you know, my whole life post-college at, you know, trying to get out on tour and then all of a sudden you start teaching and you start playing better golf. Um, so I was, I was planning to go to Q school. I had a, a pretty good 20, 19 and pretty good 2020 from what there was. Uh, I was planning to go to Q school last year, um, but then obviously COVID had other plans. So, uh, and now this making the cut in the PGA championship gets me out of uh, first stage of Q school. Right. So I'll, I'll right. definitely go this year. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, to take advantage to get, get through first stage is, is tremendous. So um, I'll, I'll do that. It gets me out of pre-qualifying for Monday qualifiers. So I'm going to try to go kind of move the schedule around and see if I can make it to a half dozen of those over the, you know, the rest of 2020, 2021. But I mean, it doesn't change. I mean, I, you know, this, the stats kind of shook it down. Like I, I believe that I could, if I can get better from kind of 150 to 225, I, that's my weakness. Um, you know, I was better with that in spots last week, but it was still, you know, it was still a weakness compared to the other guys in the field. And I, you know, and that's where I spend the bulk of my time in practice is trying to, you know, figure out ways to get that better. So it's interesting because you brought up that number. Uh, that's a number that most amateurs would say, well, hell, I'm just, I'm happy getting it somewhere close to the green. And I hate to bring up negatives, but I kind of, I, I just want to ask, uh, 17th hole, on Saturday, right in that wheelhouse, those numbers you just talked about, it was playing 223 uh, that day. What happened on that hole? Uh, wind was off the right, so we were on the clock that whole back nine. Um, okay. So really that, that's un- interesting. I didn't know that. Really unfortunate. I, I did, I thought, a really good job of handling it for, I think we got put on the clock on 12, and we were on it until you know, the midway through 17. Um, I thought I did a pretty good job of handling it. One putt that I really would, you know, kind of, I think I'd probably make an eight footer there on 13. If I, if I have a little bit more time, it was the first putt I really left short all week. Um, so I had, and it, it's kind of my bugaboo shot. It's right to left wind. And I'm trying to, 
to just kind of hold something up against the, you know, cut it back up against that win. And I, I just kind of pull, pull drew it a little bit in hindsight. What I really want back is the, is the club selection. And we were a little rushed on that tee because at the time we thought we were still on the clock. I hit four iron and it probably should have just been a five because uh, the wind was just, the wind was more right to left than I thought. Um, and then I was in the waste area on the left. I thought there was going to be sand underneath the ball. Um, made a few practice swings, seemed like there was you know, enough sand underneath it to play it like a bunker shot. And it, there was not. I just it went down and there was just rock underneath, just bounced right into the ball and just bladed into the water. So you, you would real, real quick, you just said that you thought you were still on the clock. So when obviously you're told when you're put on the clock, but you're not told again, if you catch up to the appropriate time, I, we didn't catch, we had no chance. We were so far behind the guy that I played with asked for three rulings on one hole. Uh, and we were doomed ever since then. Um, that was my first time ever on the clock in a PJ tour event. So I'm not a hundred percent sure of the process. Um, gotcha. but all I know is I asked for a ruling when I was in the waste area left to 17. And at that time he told me that we're not on the clock anymore. Um, so, but that was, you know, so there was just nothing underneath that ball. You know, I, I played it like a bunker shot and there was just, you know, there was just rock underneath. Right. where I was. I dropped it again. This time it plugged. So now I thought for sure there was going to be some sand underneath that one. And the same thing happened again. I tried to play it like a bunker shot. And, you know, even that one, it just bounced right into the ball. Um, so that was, yeah, unfortunate to say the least. Um, you know, and it really not, I just kind of guessed wrong at what, at what was underneath it. I don't, I didn't really know that that was, that was the first one like that, that I had seen all week. Um, so I, I didn't really know that that was even an option that they could have been that hard underneath it. Um, Cause it just caught me totally by surprise. All right. Well, let's flip the switch and tell me about the Eagle on seven on Thursday, because that must've been just absolute insanity. Yeah, that was, I mean, the first day, the first day with the, we had the weird wind that week. So one through four, uh, we're, we're right into the wind and the, you know, make it good up and down on one and, you know, all the battle and battle and battle and, you know, one over through six, not the easiest start in the world. I was, I was pretty pleased with that. And then, you know, got it on the green. I think it was driver five iron that day, uh, hit a really good five iron, landed it short, ran it up to about 35 feet and, he was just trying to cozy it on down there and get out of there and get back to even and, you know, went right in the center. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. I mean, it was pretty real loud. Uh, lot, that, that's one of the areas where a lot of fans are. And that was, that was pretty cool to say the least. So at that point on Thursday, you know, obviously you make a, a big splash with the Eagle. You make birdie on 11. You're, you're sitting at two under through 13. Um, does your mindset change at all? Like, because me, if I'm like three under through the first eight holes, I mean, my mind is like, I'm shooting 65 today, you know, <laughs> and obviously that never comes to fruition. I shoot like 74, 75, but like automatically I go into, I now can birdie every hole out. <laughs> well, I mean, normal course maybe, but it's kind of, it's kind of misleading because you've just played none of the holes out there are easy, but you've just played what is the easiest straight. You just played six through 13 that are right. literally these lie all downwind. So right. if you don't take advantage of, you know, for people that didn't watch that closely with that wind, if you don't take advantage of seven, 10 to some degree, and then 11, Good night. I mean, because now you now you got 14 through 18 right back into the wind. Um, so no, like, I mean, I, I saw myself up there, but at the same time, like, I understand how, you know, I think that first day someone said, or maybe it was the second day, but like holes 14 through 18, the average score on that stretch was something like three over par uh, for that five hole stretch um, for the field. Um, so no, I mean, I knew that I had so much work to do just to get it into the house. Um, that just, you know, getting, you know, more than one birdie look on the last five holes would be a pretty big achievement. So it was going to be a battle coming into the house. 
And that's that's a perfect example right there of, you know, a, a pro that kind of tepid's expectations and, you know, people like me, you know, or or even worse higher handicappers that are like, "Wow, I'm I'm even after two holes. I can I can shoot 72 today." <laughs> and th- and then they shoot 100, you know? What I mean, <laughs> No, for sure, for sure. All right, so listen, I I am so thankful for your time. I I do want to ask you one last question before you know. Yeah, I, let I got a little more time if you need it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's been a ton of things. You already mentioned someone, you know, people noticing you on courses not near your home course. But how has your golfing life, and then how has your kind of just overall life changed over the course of this last week? Well, one, I've slept a lot less. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm now sleep deprived. Um, I, I mean, again, these are all, these are all really good problems to have. Um, so I've, you know, there's been a flood of lesson inquiries. Um, so I've got to figure out how I'm going to, to deal with that and accommodate that. Cause I still, you know, I, I still want to be able to keep my game at a relatively high level. So I'm not going to start teaching 60, 70 hours a week. So I've got to figure out how I'm going to accommodate, um, some of this, you know, life. I, I don't really know. I mean, it's such a cool experience, but I had so many close friends and family that were down there. Um, I mean, that was pretty incredible to have everyone there and share in that. I don't think it would have meant nearly as much if it was just, you know, myself there or like, you know, or me, my wife and my caddy. I mean, I think to have everybody there was, was truly special. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't think my, I don't think life has changed a whole lot. I mean, it's, you know, I think by next year's PGA people will have, you know, unless I've done something else big, I'm not sure that I'm still going to be kind of a, you know, within the, the golf nut, golf junkie circle, a uh, household name. <laughs> part of me, part of me thinks that, well, let me see. Part of me, part of me thinks that when you're such kind of like in that high profile spotlight, you know, for whatever amount of time it is, um, you know, a, a lot of people in golf would get a big head, right? And they would kind of blow themselves up and be like, oh, yeah, I, you know what? I am the man. I was on Golf Channel. I was on this and that. And, you know, just talking to you for the last hour and kind of knowing a little bit of your story beforehand and finding out more, it's, it's honestly super refreshing in this day and age to have somebody that's just at that level but so down to earth as well um you know you said you had time for a few more questions so i'm i'm gonna take advantage of that uh <laughs> yeah go for it yeah it what? was weird i joked with my wife on on when we got back on tuesday i went to the grocery store to grab some coffee and it's like man nobody cheered for me when i pulled the coffee beans off of the <laughs> shelf there it was kind of weird did did that does that come from kind of like your midwestern upbringing do you think just just that kind of low-key humbleness uh, you know appreciative of, of everything that you get I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I have a, a pretty good friend group and we, I mean, especially the guys that I travel with on the mini tours for years that, man, I mean, we would put anybody that got a big head, I mean, we would put in their place in a second. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sure it's just years of, I'm sure it's just years of that. Um, but I don't know at the end of the day, I mean, there's, a, I mean, even the guys that are really good at golf, I mean, you're not, you're not curing cancer. You're not, it's it's just a game i mean it's it's really cool that you can be really good at it but um you know and, and from my end like I, I just you know it's almost more rewarding seeing the you know the people that you can help the juniors you can help you know get into a college they might not have got into or you know get to a level they might not have achieved without your help like you know at the end of the day that can be more rewarding than winning a golf tournament um you know and i think that i don't know that i would have had that perspective 10 years ago when i was doing it you know, full-time, but. No, I, th- I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is the opportunities that we get and, you know, opportunities that only I take advantage of would be, would be boring. You know, it's, it's the, the greatest thing in the world is bringing my friends along and, and being like, Hey, you want to, you know, you want to go inside the ropes of the tour event. You want to go, yeah. 
meet pros and they're like, oh my God, yeah. I, I just love doing that stuff. So it's cool to hear that, you know, just from a different perspective as well. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So, so last thing here, and this is kind of near and dear to my heart. I, I told you off air, I had coached golf. My buddy Tyler, who does a, kind of all of our visual media, uh, he took over that job once uh, I, I stopped because my kids were getting older and really involved in sports. And now my oldest is going to be playing high school golf next year against, you know, my old team, Tyler's team that he has now. <laughs> and there's just that bond in, in high school golf. And I never played, I played club golf in college. So I, I can't really attest to the bond in collegiate golf, but in high school golf, it, it's so tight because you know, there's not 40 kids on the team. It's not a football team with 60 kids or a baseball team with 24 kids. Usually, you know, there's eight or, or 10 kids and everyone knows each other and you play practice rounds and you, you get this tightness that, you know, I'm not sure other sports have just based on the numbers. And your high school golf coach was following you around at Kiowa. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, well, he was actually, I mean, he was my inside the ropes coach for the week. I mean, he was there on the range. Uh, he was there on the range with me all week. Um, so, uh, I mean, he knows he's caddied for me. I'd say a half dozen, six to 10 times over my, you know, when I was playing mini tours and stuff. Um, but yeah, he's a really good player in his own right. I mean, he's a, been a scratch golfer for, you know, ever since I've known him, you know, 20 years ago. Um, so to have that, I mean, to have that experience in high school, I think really helped get me to the level that I've gotten to is that, you know, most high school coaches, you know, aren't always the best golfers. Um, so I think I that's, really that's put it lightly. That. Yep. <laughs> um, but to have him, you know, he knows my game and my swing really well. And he was, you know, he was key in coming up with, you know, we, we'd sit down every night, go over the pins for the next day, just, you know, kind of keeping me in the right space of just task at hand and you know let's do what let's do what i know that i can do um you know which is you know generally just kind of short game it to death um but yeah i mean it's it's unbelievable because i can't imagine that that's you know there's been a a high school coach you know involved at at a major championship uh terribly often over the years yeah i mean just to add to your special week i mean just another special moment there um, all right, Brad, listen, I know you're inundated with messages and texts and Instagram DMs and stuff, but if people want to get in touch with you or they want to follow, they want to kind of continue on with your journey, how can they do that? Uh, both are, uh, Instagram is at Brad Merrick golf. Uh, last name is M A R E K. So at Brad Merrick golf and then website, which has my contact info as well is just Brad Awesome. Well, listen, I mean, you've got an enormous fan here, and I'm sure you're going to have a ton more fans once this podcast drop. Uh, Brad, I can't. First off, congratulations. Um, as someone that is an enormous fan of humble athletes and, and people that just kind of keep their head down and grind, I thank you for that. Uh, thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you for giving us a little bit of your time. Oh, pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a bunch. I appreciate it, man. All right, people. So either get busy golfing or get busy dying. Straight down the middle. It went straight down the middle. At Eagles and Arrows, we supply timeless style and high-quality golf essentials. We strive to provide the personal attention that consumers deserve. We're taking extra steps to personally and thoughtfully design our goods to bring you the best products out there. In 2021, we are releasing a new head club cover every month. We're releasing several new hat designs, including the Tremendous Slouch, which is on our website right now. We're also doing custom designs on our gloves and all of our leather goods. At the end of the day, we're all about living life to its fullest and enjoying this amazing game that we love with great people. Love golf, live life, eagles and arrows. Check us out on Instagram at Eagles and Arrows CO and online at www.eaglesandarrows.com.